The Antichrist will commit the ultimate act of blasphemy. In the middle, dead center, Jesus tells us, as Daniel tells us, in the dead center point of the tribulation, he'll go into a rebuilt temple and call himself God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the third message of a group dealing with Daniel chapter 7, the chapter in which this prophet had a vision of four beasts which signified four empires. As we continue in our message entitled, Understanding the Vision, we pick up as Dr. Brogy explains why two verses in this chapter seemingly contradict one another. Now there's a new view that has entered into evangelicalism. There are books that are coming out on InterVarsity Press, once an evangelical press that says that God does not know the future. That is sheer, unadulterated heresy. And so they attack this verse because they say, well, in verse 3, he said they came out of the sea. But in this verse, he says they will arise from the earth. Remember, in the first section, he's using symbols. This is apocalyptic literature. And most of the apocalyptic literature in the Scripture will define itself. And so he begins by giving him symbols, but he's not in the symbolic portion. He's giving the interpretation. And so we saw from a number of texts, if you weren't here, you might want to go back and listen to the first of three sermons here in the seventh chapter. We saw from a number of verses that the term sea can be used figuratively, that the great sea here is not literally the Mediterranean Sea, but the mass of humanity as we use it in English sometimes. We say, oh, look at that great sea of people. Well, in verse 17, he's not speaking symbolically, but literally he's giving the the interpretation. And he tells us that these four beasts, so to speak, are four kings who arise from the earth. There are no contradictions anywhere in the Bible. I will share the gospel with unbelievers, and they say it's filled with contradictions. I say, okay, show me one. Show me one. They're just blowing smoke. They can't find a contradiction in the Bible. And if you are here for our course on bibliology, and many of you should come on Wednesday nights, Some of you need to be bringing your children on Wednesday nights. They need to be grounded because we teach on Wednesday nights seminary-level courses very often. And they need to be grounded because when they go to the university, they're going to be attacked. I don't know what you're doing on Wednesday nights. Some of you, the most spiritual thing to do is be at home with those little children. But some of you could be here, and you should try to be here. But in our course in Bibliology, we went through all the so-called alleged contradictions in the Bible. There are none. I've been studying this book carefully for 40 plus years, and I've never ever found one. But then after he describes these four passing kingdoms, the angel goes on to describe this fifth permanent kingdom. Look at verse 18. It begins with a contrastive conjunction. You ought to circle the first word, but. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for ages to come. Hold your finger here. Turn to the book of Revelation for just a moment. It's the last book of the Bible if you're new to it. There is a coming permanent kingdom that Daniel says is for all ages to come. He's mentioning here the kingdom of the Messiah, the fifth and final kingdom after Rome is finished. 
And there's a number of verses in the New Testament that speaks of this kingdom. It's promised in the Old Testament, though the length of it is given only in the New Testament. It is going to last for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. The second coming of Christ is unfolding, not the rapture, the second coming in the 19th chapter, beginning now in the 11th verse. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, that's Jesus on this horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him. It's not a tattoo, by the way. It's written probably on his, on his sheath that's on his sword. Some use this as the biblical basis for tattoos. Oh, how people abuse the scriptures. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Friend, that's us. We're coming back with Jesus. After seven years before this event, seven plus years, because the church is raptured, there's an undisclosed period of time, and then the tribulation period begins. That is seven years long. And it is certainly rapid, but we don't know how much space there is between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll study that in Revelation. But while in heaven, we are rewarded for our service. You are saved by grace. You're rewarded for service that God does through you as you yield to the Spirit. And now we're coming back with Jesus, and the Scripture teaches that we are clothed in fine linens, white and clean. Now look at chapter 20 in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sailed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So Messiah comes, rules for a thousand years. The devil is locked up. But there'll be sin on the earth. We'll see how, because sometimes we blame things on the devil that the devil has nothing to do with. And the proof of how fallen we are is we will see at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and he will deceive the nations. But during that thousand years, and people will live a long period of time, you see, at the second coming, those who are alive, those who survive the great tribulation, and there will be some, they will enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies. And they'll have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. This is why Satan will be able to deceive some of the nations. Some who make the rapture of the church and the second coming one event cannot literally interpret prophecy. Why? Because at the end of the thousand years, there's this big rebellion. And they come against God's Messiah. But if we're raptured before the great tribulation period, which we will be, and the seven years begin, if it's not one and the same event, look, in your resurrection body, you can't sin. No one can sin or a resurrection. You'll be like Christ, the Scripture says. So there's obviously people who are not raptured, which argues for a post-tribulational rapture, who enter the millennial reign. But even during that thousand years, some will only live to be a hundred and die. Most will live like the days of Noah, 900 
thousand years, the whole time. And they're going to have a lot of kids. Just because I'm saved doesn't mean that my children are saved or my grandchildren are saved. God has children. He has no grandchildren. He has no great-grandchildren. Each of us must make a personal decision for Christ. And some of those great people who enter into the millennial reign, who have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, some of them will not respond, and the devil will deceive them. Verse 4, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the words of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned for a thousand years. So not only will we come back on white stallions, stallions with Jesus to rule and reign, but tribulation saints who are slaughtered during the seven-year time, they're going to be resurrected and they're going to rule and reign with us. It's incredible. And by the way, that will be the featured way of death, beheading. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. And there are Christians today who are being beheaded because they refuse to repent at the sword. They will confess Jesus to the end. And that's what will happen during the great tribulation period. Those who do not have the mark of the beast, who refuse to take it, most of them are going to lose their heads, literally. All of these people who never met each other, these writers, Daniel and John, there's a theme that runs all the way through it. Now think about it. If you ask 10 people today who spoke the same language to write a book, each of them, on religion, and then you tried to put that book together into one, what kind of a mess would you have? Yet you have over 40 human authors who live over a period of about 1,600 years under a wide variety of conditions. And when their books are brought together, there's one book, not a collection of books. These authors wrote on three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. They wrote from many diverse places, Moses in a desert, Paul in a prison, John in exile. They wrote in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. They're from a variety of backgrounds. Moses is a spiritual leader. Joshua is a military leader. David's a shepherd. Nehemiah, he's a cupbearer. Solomon, he's a king. Amos, he's a herdsman. Daniel, we've seen, he's a prime minister of sorts. Matthew, a tax collector. Luke, a medical doctor. Paul, a rabbi. The apostle Peter, a fisherman. And when the book is brought together, there's not one contradiction And there's one cohesive thread from Genesis all the way to the Revelation. Why? Because behind every single human author, there is one divine author, God the Holy Spirit. Now compare that to the Quran. The Quran's written by one person, Zadi Ibn Thabat, under the supervision of Muhammad's father-in-law, Abu Bakr. He writes about 650 A.D. Remember, Muhammad is a Johnny-come-lately. He comes 600 years after Christ. So when you get Christmas cards and you see minarets on them, and I get them every single year, I thought, who are these people who are producing these Christmas cards? You may see minarets when you go to the old city today, but there were no minarets in the time of Christ because Muhammad comes 600 years after Christ. One person writes the Quran, and in 650... A number of Arab scholars uh, removed all the variant and contradictory additions to give us the one that they read today. How different the Scripture is from the Quran. There's no prophecy in the Quran, not a single one, as I was witnessing 
to a taxi driver recently in Kentucky. Not one, not a single one, but throughout the Word of God, because God knows the future, He writes the future. So here's Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. Go back here, verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And of course, this is the fifth kingdom. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think about that the next time you pray it. Have you understood it in light of what Daniel and the Revelation says? We are praying for Jesus to come back where his kingdom will come literally on the earth for a thousand years and his will will be carried out as it's being carried out in heaven today. Why would Jesus tell you to pray that if it were not going to happen? Why would he tell you, blessed are the meek for they should inherit the earth if it wasn't going to take place? Now listen to me, you can get discouraged in the days that we're living in. But I want to remind you that one of these days... Messiah is coming back, and he will come back with all of his saints clothed in blood-washed white robes, and he will rule and reign. And all these people who have mocked and defied God throughout the ages, they will all yield. Everyone will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, this is nothing new what we're seeing our day. Throughout the history of humanity, they have always clubbed God's ables. They've mocked his Josephs, they've stoned his saints, they've killed his prophets, they've poked fun at his preachers, and they've slain God's people as they're doing today. But he is in control. The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for ages to come. Rather than this wicked world in these wicked men and women who are leading the nations of this world, they will not be in charge. The Lord Jesus, Yeshua, Messiah will be in charge and we will rule and reign with him. Now, that's the summary of the kingdom. Now he gives it in detail, beginning in verse 19. The vision is interpreted in detail. Daniel's not entirely satisfied with the summary, and so he asks the interpreter for more information, especially as it relates to this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom. And so the angel from heaven begins by reviewing the symbolism of the fourth kingdom. Look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Now, we saw this fourth beast in the second chapter, and we saw that it was the Roman Empire. But the Bible again interprets itself. So verse 19 speaks of the fourth beast, but if you look down into verse 23, it speaks of a fourth kingdom. And if you know history, you know there's only been four worldwide empires in the history of man. But there's a dimension to this fourth empire that never happened in the days of Rome. Remember, the first three empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece were all conquered. Rome was never conquered. It just fell apart. It rotted apart from the inside out. But God speaks of a coming dimension of this fourth empire that has never happened. When there is going to be a coalition of nations, ten horns, which verse 24 tells us ten kings that will arise. And so we know this fourth beast is the Roman Empire revived, so to speak. And again, if you weren't here for that, you might want to go back and listen to the prior sermons. Look at verse 20. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head 
and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than all its associates. Daniel is saying that in my vision I saw this horrendous beast with ten horns. And then I saw this other horn, which again goes back to verse 8. We were studied last time. This little one or this little horn, some of you add a word in, in some of your translations to smooth it out. It comes up. So there's this ten nation coalition. And amongst these ten nations, an eleventh horn comes up. It sprouts up. It subdues three of them. There's obviously three nations that don't agree with this coming world leader, and he will crush those three. I kept looking, verse 21, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So verse 21 informs me that this little one, this little horn had success in persecuting God's saints. For how long, you say? Verse 22, until, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. We saw the Ancient of Days last week, a reference to God the Father. And in this perfect timing, he will say to his son, go get your kingdom. And he will come, and it will be over for the Antichrist. So the symbolism of the fourth kingdom is reviewed. But now in verses 23 through 26, the symbolism of the fourth kingdom is revealed in further detail. Look at verse 23. It's an important verse. Thus he said... The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth. He's speaking of a one world global government. It's going to happen. Listen, after the church is raptured, there's going to be such chaos across the planet. The world is not going to know what to do. And they're going to agree on a one world leader, a one world government that will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Again, according to verse 2, this is the Roman Empire. So the first part of the Roman Empire didn't express itself like this, except uh, it had a cultural rule, but it never devoured the whole earth, but that is going to happen. Put out in the margin, would you, Revelation 13 and verse 8. Write that next to verse 23. Let me read it to you all who dwell on the earth will worship him, contextually the little horn, the Antichrist, Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. They'll be slow. So there's, there's a book God has. We're going to study God's library when we come to chapter 12. And there's a book called the Lamb's book of life. And in it, ever before God spoke the world into existence, he put the name of every person who would ever be saved in his book. You say he prearranged it. No, God is omniscient. He knew if God didn't know who was going to be saved and who wasn't going to be saved, God wouldn't be God. He knows the beginning from the end. And so in eternity past, he wrote the names of every person who would be saved. That in no way, shape, or form changes your free will, my friend. And so this little horn, he's going to become a big horn of sorts. Look at verse 24. He begins to unfold some of the details of this coming final leader. As for the 10 horns... Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Now, don't miss this. So first, there's this one world government that he speaks of in 23. And then in 24, out of this one world government is going to come ten nations. Now, when the European common market called today the EU came online, people said, that's it. 
10 nations. Then they became 11 and 12 and 13 and 15. I don't know how many they have, and the Brits are thinking of leaving. That's not what he's speaking about. Follow the chronology very, very carefully. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise. So first the one world government, then the 10 kings arise. So it could be the European common market. That would be the Western sphere of Europe, or it could be the Eastern leg, which would be a coalition of Arab nations. But 10 of them are going to come together. This is after the rapture of the church when the one world government comes. And another will arise after them. That's number 11. And he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. Now, remember, kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably all the way through the chapter. Somehow, this little horn, after the ten kingdoms arise, an eleventh in the middle of them is going to come up, and from here will come the Antichrist. Verse 25, he goes on to describe him. He, this little horn, will speak out against the Most High. Remember, I called him Mr. Big Mouth. He's got a big mouth. Here he comes. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, I should say that there is a lot of time and energy that has been spent in the history of the church on identifying the Antichrist. In the first century, many believers thought it was Nero because of the way he harshly treated Christians, and he made a claim to divinity. In AD 81, Emperor Domitian, some thought he was the Antichrist because he also claimed to be God and demanded worship. In the Middle Ages, many said it was Muhammad because if you didn't repent at the sword, you were killed, just like ISIS is doing today. And many so-called Christians defected from the faith, and they gave their allegiance to Islam. Uh, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX uh, took great pleasure in calling each other the Antichrist. Uh, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther said the Pope was the Antichrist. Some years later, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, a confession that is used by the Reformed Church today, they wrote in 1646 that the Pope, speaking of the one who was alive in their day, was the Antichrist. Obviously, Article 25 was wrong. There was no other head of the church than the Lord Jesus Christ. I say amen to that. In no sense can the Pope of Rome be the head of it. I say amen to that. Rather, he is that Antichrist, speaking of the Pope of Rome, the man of sin, the son of damnation, who glorifies himself as opposed to Christ in everything related to God. Now, they thought it was the Pope who was alive then. Now, it may be a coming Pope, because we're going to see that with the Antichrist, there's going to be a one-world religion, but he won't be the Antichrist. In this one-world religion, the Bible says, as we're going to study in the Revelation, will come from a city that is built on seven hills. In either case, the Pope in 1646 was not the Antichrist. In more contemporary times, some said Napoleon was the Antichrist. Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Khrushchev. When I was a new Christian, it was popular to say Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Some said later on it was Reagan. Some today say it's Obama. And some have tried to key off of the number 666, the number of the Antichrist. And in many languages, like Greek and Hebrew, every letter of the alphabet has a numerical equivalent. So in Greek, alpha is one, beta is two, and so forth. 
And the same is true in a case language like Latin. And if you take the crown that the Pope wears and the inscription that's written on its side and you manipulate it and you play around with it, some have come up with the number 666. That would be like, well, my last name is Brogy, six letters, B-R-O-G-G-I. My middle name is Joseph, six letters. My first name is Carl, but in Spanish it's Carlos, so 666. There you have it, all right? I mean, you can play all kinds of games. The fact is, is we do not know who the Antichrist is, and no one will know until he is revealed. But while we do not know who he is, we know what he is like. And there are at least three character traits that he underscores for us. Number one, the Antichrist will be a blasphemer. We learn that in verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High. We've already read back in verse 20. He had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. He's a great braggart. Hmm. Second Thessalonians describes him in the second chapter. He is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The Antichrist will commit the ultimate act of blasphemy. In the middle, dead center, Jesus tells us, as Daniel tells us, in the dead center point of the tribulation, he'll go into a rebuilt temple and call himself God. He's a blasphemer. He's also the persecutor. Verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. That word wear down or wear out in some of your Bibles is a Hebrew word that means to beat down, to oppress, to harass. And he's going to deal with God's people in a brutal way. Revelation 13, 7, put it in the margin next to this verse. Just listen. It was given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to them. You say, well, wait a minute. Who are these saints that Daniel in the Revelation speaks of? I thought the church has been raptured. Remember, there are three groups of saints in the Bible. There's Old Testament saints, there's church saints, and there's tribulation saints. There's Old Testament saints, Psalm 34, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's church saints. You can call me St. Carl if you want. That's what the scripture would say. And if you're born again, you too are a holy one, not based on your performance, but the righteousness God gave you and imputed to you as a gift by his grace and mercy. But there's coming a future group of people who will be saints after the rapture of the church who are converted. And the Antichrist will wear down the saints. And we will study in the Revelation by seizure, by starving, by beheading. There's going to be a great slaughter. He's a persecutor. There are no contradictions in God's Word because it is God's Word, and God makes no mistakes. We're in a series of messages from the book of Daniel. To listen again to this or any of the messages in the series, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877 877- 787-7478 and requesting program DAN10. Anyone who has seriously studied the Bible cannot help but acknowledge that it truly is inspired by God through men. The amount of fulfilled prophecy that has already occurred and the prophetic utterances made by different men over a period of centuries that coincide with each other are irrefutable evidence of a great and mighty God. And yet, some have chosen not to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've not yet made Christ Lord of your life, 
Let us send you a pamphlet and DVD at no cost that will prove to you that God exists and that He wants a personal and intimate relationship with you. Just call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and ask for, Is God Your Friend or Foe? We'll send it to you at no cost and without obligation. Just call 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we continue our look at the visions and dreams of Daniel. Join us then as we search the scriptures. (music) 